Truly today has had a number of special features and attributes of it, and we're thankful that we can come together this, this Sunday afternoon in the way that we are. Being the 11th of November, of course, it is the official Veterans Day, and I suppose it'd be fair to, to make a statement of appreciation to all those persons, gentlemen and otherwise, who have served in such a courageous way to, to help maintain the peace and the fortitude of our country. Ecclesiastes chapter number 10 will be before us this tonight. And in a way, the songs we've just sung together have been so penetrating and grand, haven't they? I know that my Redeemer liveth. What a statement of confidence. What a fellowship. That's the second one that we sang. And finally, to consider about the heavenly sunlight. And so we've sung all those songs, the presentation, the message has truly been a very moving one. In a way, the attitude of wisdom will come before us tonight. In fact, you'll probably notice this is the 10th installment in our series of lessons on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're rolling into the final stretch. Chapters 11 and 12 will be the ones that will basically conclude the book, and we'll be looking forward to ending that book with those two, of course, really soon. You may notice on our next slide... that we'll be looking at least at some basic introductory matters, one of which will be, remember, that when we began this book, we at least made note of his life worth living. And as we gave consideration to that question, of course, Solomon initially noted, all is vanity, all is vexation of spirit. That statement of chapter 1, verse 2 reminds us, doesn't it, that there were many examples given about the monotony of life, the seeming fact that it doesn't pay dividends. You get out less than you have to put into it. But remember, time and again when we made note of that, his assertion was that's the way it appears under the sun. I wonder if you look above the sun, if you look in essence above the mundane plane that may be immediately before us. Well, no wonder as we conclude that slide. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 really highlight the beauty of wisdom, the features of it. And so far through chapter 7, 8, and 9, we've already looked at those, but tonight will be chapter 10. And the presentation of this chapter will be a little different than those previous ones because he highlights contrast. In other words, those who are wise will not behave like this. So I wonder what are some things we ought not be doing. What are some things that really would characterize you and me if we were individuals given to wisdom? Well, this chapter is going to highlight a number of things that will be contrasted to wisdom. In other words, folly and foolishness will be highlighted before us tonight. With that said, let's go ahead and look at the next slide. In so doing, we'll quickly appreciate... That verses 1 to 3 will be the initial section of the chapter. I'd like to read them, and then let's give some thought as to what we're going to read. Now, a moment ago, the first two verses were read, but we're going to add verse 3 to that consideration. Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to every one that he is a fool. 
What an interesting, interesting way to begin the chapter. As far as I know, it's the only time in the Bible when dead flies serve as the centerpiece of a passage. And yet, that's the manner in which the opening verse of the 10th chapter begins. Let's, in fact, piece a few of those particulars together. I would invite you to notice that the first verse of chapter 7 had also made a reference to some fine ointment or perfume. There it was, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. A good name. The appreciation of, the conviction of, the richness attached to a good name and maintaining the fidelity of that name. Very meaningful. Well, now in chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies. Well, you and I know they are inappropriate in a perfumer's mixture. When a person who mixes perfumes and makes perfumes, he doesn't add dead flies to the mixture. And he does not, in fact, add to that mixture those things that would bring out stinking aroma. That's not what perfume is about. Solomon says that's exactly the way it is in regard to a person who wants to live wisely and foolishness in that person's life. It is just as, as unbecoming for stinking flies or rather dead flies in perfume, as it is for folly in the life of a person who wants to be wise. And so if you and I desire to be wise, if we desire to be directed along the way of reputation and honor, we've got to live with carefulness. We've got to live making sure we avoid certain things and encourage other things in our life. We don't want to be like the dead flies. We want to be rather like those things pertinent and needful to be wise. For that reason, might I encourage you to note this. Verse number 2 builds on that observation like this. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Some have made the observation that right versus left is here, at least identified in chapter 10 verse 2, And, of course, that distinction in the political world is rather easily seen as well, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that quite often in the Bible, things directed toward the right are directed toward holiness, and they're directed toward more approval in the sight of God. Consider these examples. Matthew 7, verses 24 and following. The wise man built his house, of course, on the rock, but the foolish man built his house on the sand. And that distinction was, of course, of course, highlighted their wisdom over against the contrast of foolishness. But in chapter 25 of Matthew, you remember that on that scene of the great day of judgment, God separated some on His right and others on His left. Who were the ones on the right? It was the ones that were faithful. It was the ones to whom He said, I was sick and you came to me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was in prison and you visited me. And of course other things were listed, but then to those on the left he said, you didn't do any of those things to me. Well, their right and left are somewhat identified, at least in that connection, to those more appreciative and faithful to God versus those that were not. The strength of that thought leads me to invite you to note these verses. In Leviticus 14, 25, remember there it was the right hand and the right thumb and the right toe 
that was to be anointed by the nature of what the priest had to offer. And that's what made one favorable on the sight of God. It's as though, again, he isn't talking about biology and anatomy. Every one of us have our heart on the same side of our body. But he isn't talking about just the old physical pump in our chest either. Verse 2, a wise man's heart is at his right hand. Those that are wise will recognize the appreciation of truth, the appreciation of what leads to things that are really wholesome and sound good. But those that are fools, they don't see beyond the immediate and quite often may involve themselves in what is more attached to the left. It just won't end good. And we're about to see some examples in this chapter. Why don't we close that slide while noting one more thing. Verse number 3. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him. And he saith to every one that he is a fool. That verse is one of the clearest biblical teachings of the fact of what I've tried to ask you to notice. A fool won't remain silent and known only to himself very long. By the way that he talks and the way that he acts and the things that he does, soon others are going to also know that he's not very wise. He behaves in a way that is not becoming of a person who wishes to be wise. That being said, isn't it interesting how strongly that statement is known? Again, this person who's a fool, his wisdom fails him, and then the text says, he says to everyone that he's a fool. He announces it. Look at what I've done as an open evidence and testimony that I've behaved foolishly. Maybe we've each at one time or another lived to appreciate that notation. At this point, might we say this, that is really the beginning point of what's to follow. Paragraph after paragraph will now give us some examples of this kind of behavior. Let's see what some of the ones are going to be as we take up the fourth verse. Verses 4 to 7 are the next section in the chapter. Let me read that one, and then let's return and give some thought to the nature of these verses. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth." That little set of four verses, as I've tried to indicate in the reading at the top, seems to be an emphasis on folly that can manifest itself in those who are leaders, those who are rulers, those who have the obligation to make decisions about the wherewithal of those that live beneath them. Is it possible that those who serve in notable positions can be guilty of folly? Oh, don't we know the answer to that to be yes? Let's look at a few details out of this set of verses, though. First of all, I've asked you to consider this with me. Isn't it true that we have an interesting biblical scene of a man named Solomon who seemingly at the outset of his reign had things right? The God of heaven in 1 Kings 3 said to him, Solomon, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. It seemingly didn't take Solomon very long to make up his mind 
He said, give thy servant an understanding heart because I am tasked with the responsibility to judge this thy people. And I'm just a child. I'm not able to properly discern it. I need the wisdom that God only you can provide. And of course, God did favorably bless Solomon with great wisdom and he was the greatest of the people on earth at the time. Fascinating, isn't it, that he had it right at that moment. But yet, notice here, Solomon said, I've seen this. I wonder, was he referring to himself at some later time in life? Or is this merely something he'd seen in others who had jurisdiction? Either way, you look at that. First of all, verse number 5, There is an evil which I've seen under the sun. Did you notice? He called it evil. It's not just a bad idea. He said, this is evil. An error which proceedeth from the ruler. So notice, a ruler, a person in a position of authority is making this mistake. Let's see what he's doing. Verse 6, Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. The idea is easy enough to see, isn't it? Folly. A ruler who elevates and exalts what is abject foolishness. And yet what really is right, what's noble, what's good for the people is repressed. It is not encouraged and perhaps it's even downtrodden. That's what he describes. A ruler who makes the choice to encourage, exalt, and elevate what's foolishness. And those who in fact endorse that foolishness. Whereas those that are wise and those who do have a sound approach, the ruler doesn't encourage that. In fact, represses it, discourages it. So much so that verse 7 says, I've seen servants upon horses. Now keep in mind, that's an imagery like this. Remember, in the ancient era, those that rode the horses, those were the dignitaries, those were the ones that were in positions of authority, the ones in positions of respect and honor. Solomon said, I've seen servants on horses. Servants ought not be the ones riding the horses. Servants ought to be the ones taking care of the ones on the horses. Solomon said, I've seen it turned around. Rulers that would put servants on the horses, whereas verse 7, the princes, the ones who ought to be on the horses, are the ones walking as servants beside the horses. A graphic way of stating the servants have got it back, or the, the, the rulers had it backward. In their own wisdom, they didn't elevate the ones that should have been elevated. They did elevate the ones that should not have been elevated. You see, rulers can sometimes make wrong decisions that way, can't they? For that reason, might I invite you to know how important it is then for not only rulers but each of us to be mindful of wisdom. Proverbs 4, verse 7, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. May you and I appreciate then that the message of wisdom is such a vital one. Could I add to that Ephesians 5, 15, where the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus said, Seek after wisdom. Colossians 4, verse number 5, Seek after wisdom, redeeming the time because the days are evil. 
We are constantly surrounded by a world under the influence of many who choose to act foolishly. We need to remain wise. Understanding then that some things that are often paraded as right are not. Things are elevated which not only are not just immaterial, they're, they're completely evil. Sometimes our rulers have made bad mistakes this way. Solomon talked about this a long time ago, didn't he? Perhaps one final thing in that little trio of verses would be verse number 4. That verse again reads, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. That's a little word of biblical wisdom, encouraging one to be able to restrain your emotions. Now, in that day and time, the ruler had absolute control. He comes by you and you aren't doing something that satisfies him. He could have you killed on the spot. He could have you thrown into prison on the spot. What he encourages here, Solomon, and remember, he was king. He says, if the spirit of the ruler rise up against you, if the ruler has found some disfavor in you, he says, leave not your place. Don't you fly into a rage and try to argue with him. You're not going to win an argument with the king, all the authorities with him. What he says is, yielding pacifieth great offenses. You be humble, you be tactful, you respond to his authority, and you may well pacify his offense. Isn't that still the way it works sometimes today? On the job, your boss, baby's in a bad mood. Nothing seems to be able to satisfy him on this particular day, and he just flies into a rage. And if you fly into a rage arguing with him, it's not going to turn out good for all the authorities with him. You may get fired. You may get demoted. You may find things very uncomfortable in the days and weeks ahead. If one is able to restrain one's tongue, don't say anything inappropriate. Don't act in, a, shall we say, an overtly unfavorable fashion. Just kind of take things at the moment till he calms down. Sometimes that's so much the better. That's what Solomon teaches us here, verse number 4. As we close verse number 7, it brings us to the next paragraph. And this paragraph has to do with another chore, another task, another aspect of life that you and I know very, very well. Working. Let's read verses 8 through 11 and see what words of wisdom are to be found here. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. If the iron be blunt, and he do not whet the edge, then must he put more to strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. Working. All of us know very well about working. But could I pause and ask this? Is it possible for there to be folly, to be an element of foolishness in light of the way that perhaps work is commonly approached? Solomon asserts the answer to be yes. Let's develop it somewhat like this. All of the texts and all the examples we've just read seemingly surround the matter of carelessness. May I at least use that as the key thought for this little set of verses. 
even in the work that you and I do, in a common way, may we always strive to utilize an element of carefulness. Look at some of these examples. Verse number 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. So picture in your mind's eye a moment, here's a gentleman who's digging a hole for some reason, and then he ends up falling into it out of carelessness. He doesn't watch where he steps, doesn't watch what he's doing, and ends up falling in the very hole he just dug. Well, that may not only injure himself, it could also perhaps lead to other damage or harm. Carelessness. Look at another example, same verse. Whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. So picture a person trimming a hedge and you don't even see the snake that's there. Now I confess, sometimes they can camouflage or hide themselves well, but the point seemingly is noted. At least in light of what he says, this is the kind of snake you'd be able to see, and yet the person rushes headlong and does it without thinking and isn't even aware of the danger that's there. Sometimes you and I can perhaps have that mentality. We rush into a job without adequate preparation. And have you ever known of someone who injures a back, another muscle, because perhaps the adequate preparation and lifting technique isn't utilized? Look at another example, verse 9. Whoso remove a stone shall be hurt therewith. Here's a person picking up rocks and moving them to another place and the person ends up injuring himself. Look at another example, same verse. He that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Splitting wood. Now, a lot of us know a lot about that. And we also know again that if one isn't careful in that kind of work, you can hurt yourself, you can hurt somebody else pretty quickly, can't you? Solomon says it's important to even have an element of wisdom as you give thought to being careful, even in light of tasks like these. It is to those I would add this. He mentions this one in verse number 10. This one certainly is a very strong and easy consideration, isn't it? Imagine trying to split wood with a dull axe. Or perhaps to bust wood with a dull wedge. I think we all, I've seen some chuckles in the audience, we understand you'd be far better off to invest your time to sharpen the axe and then return and complete the job. You in the short term will be much better off. Look at what Solomon says. If the iron be blunt and he do not whet the edge, then must he put to more strength. Solomon says this is a foolish behavior. It is not wise to behave like this. And so the verse closes. But wisdom, note the difference. This person has just been described by not sharpening the axe. That person didn't act wisely. But now he says, but wisdom is profitable to direct. When all of us then think about our tasks, our chores, we can be more efficient. We can accomplish more given the time at hand. If only we apply some wisdom. One final thing on that slide is the lesson of verse number 11. Maybe this was the most interesting and even challenging part in that paragraph. Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment. Now you and I know he's talking about a poisonous snake here. And you and I know you often don't need much provocation. You certainly don't need to enchant it. 
It can strike without any help from you. That's his point. Because he says a babbler is no better. A person who just babbles is no better off than the person who thinks you have to charm a snake to get it to strike. It can strike without enchantment. And so too a babbler will pour forth foolishness and folly without you doing anything to help them. You and I don't have to help a fool. They'll make their foolishness known soon enough. Now those kind of topics, those kind of ideas are really practical, aren't they? And they can easily be applied by you and by me, can't they? The next paragraph takes us to a different regime in a different realm. Let's turn the slide to that one as well. And may I invite you to consider the language that you and I use. Foolishness in talking. Beginning in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is known of words. A man cannot tell what shall be, and what shall be after him who can tell him. The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knoweth not how to go to the city. That's verses 12 to 15. Now let's revisit and briefly make some comments about the language you and I choose to use and what Solomon saw in the ancient era. First, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. Do you express gratitude and thankfulness to those that have done kindness to you? But the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. A fool will say things to entrap himself, get himself in trouble. He talks before he thinks, and then he has to try to take back words he wished he'd never said. You'll notice verse 12 says, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. All throughout the Word of God, you and I are encouraged to be very careful about the words that we choose to use. I would ask you to consider Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The words that you and I say, do they minister grace to the people who hear them? I trust that they do. The Word of God encourages us to choose words that way. To that kind of thinking, I would add this. Fools speak words that are destructive. Notice, verse number 12, they swallow up themselves. Look at verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. Now this is that same person who is engaged in folly. The same one likened unto again those dead flies that are used to make the apothecary's ointment. He says in verse 13, the beginning of his words is foolishness. That seems to be what he dwells on. He talks that which is foolish. He does not give his life to wisdom, and he does not give his life to what provokes graciousness in those that hear. But did you note with me in verse 13 that if the beginning of his words is foolishness, what's the end of them? The inspired writer says the end is mischievous madness. An individual, and you and I perhaps have known them, they seemingly just talk and talk and talk, and quite often their words don't have a lot of sense to them. They wander from one topic or one subject to the next, and it's not coherently presented, and ultimately the basis is not etched in wisdom. 
It's etched in the flighty cultural things of man at most. Solomon here writes, From beginning to end, it goes from foolishness to mischievous madness. Verse number 14 reminds us that a fool is full of words. Look at the amount of one speaking. It's a fair thing to say that here Solomon teaches that too many words can be a very bad thing. We talk more than what we should. In this instance, you'll notice, a fool also is full of words. Individuals who choose to talk a lot about things they really don't know a whole lot about. They talk about a large number of things which, again, are not, shall we say, thoroughly familiar to them. Maybe you and I can appreciate, again, how wise the Bible says we can be to know what words to say, to say them, and then to stop talking. Look at some of these examples. In Proverbs 10, verse number 19, we are on that occasion urged by Solomon to not be given to too many words. In James 5, verse 12, how did the writer James state it? Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatsoever is more than this cometh of evil. Isn't it true then that when you and I select and choose our words, it's our desire to state the facts and to do that truthfully and to continue to speak onward, Solomon would say that's not terribly wise. Aren't you thankful for the Word of God, and haven't you often been impressed by? Given all the history of mankind, and all of it is summarized in a book no bigger than that. If you or I had been the one writing the Bible, how big would it have been? I mean, we might have put the history of the United States of America in a book this size... We might then have added Rome and Greece and all the other empires of men. With the Bible would have been so big, you, wouldn't have, you would have had to have a crane to haul it around. And God put the entirety of all that's needed from creation until the end of time in a book no bigger than this. You see, He was careful of what words He chose. He selected those words to present the truth and those words that send that forth with the entire and complete message, all that's needed. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, All things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. Maybe one last point on that slide. Taken from verse number 15, The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them, because he knoweth not how to go to the city. The description there is this one. Do you get the idea? Do you see the, the point that Solomon's attempting to make? Here's a person who is talking at length about something obvious, how to get to the city. And in that day and time, the roadways, there weren't that many of them. Everybody knew how to go to the city. And yet here's a person talking on and on and on about how to go up the road to the city, talking about what's needless, what's not that important. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. Didn't the Lord on that occasion say that, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. We must carefully watch our words. It's at that point we come to the closing paragraph of this chapter. Verses 16 to 20. Let's turn this slide.
and look at yet another warning, this time about foolishness that can be seen in officers. Beginning in verse 16, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy princes eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in due season, for strength and not for drunkenness. By much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Now, with that reading of verses 16 to 20, here are some thoughts about some truths that I think you and I know very well. The first couple of verses might be summarized like this. A nation, a community, a group of people are indeed to be pitied when their ruler is given to selfishness and indulgence. When the ruler legislates and makes decisions and acts to benefit himself without concern and care for those over whom he should be legislating and considering matters. That's the main message of verse number 16. Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child. A child can act very selfishly. I want my candy and I want it now. I want to go out and play and I want to do it now. And I'll fuss and throw a tantrum and cry if you don't give me what I want. When a ruler behaves selfishly by wanting what benefits them without concerning care for the people over whom they rule and reign, that land is to be pitied. That people are in for some suffering. But on the other hand, verse 17 Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is a son of nobles. So when this king does understand the times and does recognize that he is a ruler over other people and doesn't merely behave in a way that's selfish, indulgent, that land by and large will be blessed because they understand there's one in power who is mindful of their predicament, who understands their circumstance. Verses 18 to 20, close the chapter and the thoughts on that slide I've summarized very briefly. By much slothfulness the building decayeth. That's a powerful verse talking about laziness. Whether it be in rulers or otherwise, notice what happened. By much slothfulness the building decays. We know that a building, if it isn't cared for, It'll last a while, but the time will come when it'll decay, it'll deteriorate, it'll dilapidate over the force of time. You'll notice that verse goes on to say, Through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. Floors become weak and walls do the same, and this edifice, this structure that was once notable and respectful is now not even fit for animals. It'll fall through. Well, you and I are reminded that, of course, slothfulness, quite often the Proverbs writer Solomon says much about that. Chapter 6 of that book, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. In the same way an ant prepares in the summertime for the character of winter and the coldness ahead, we're encouraged to again understand the need for preparation and to not be lazy and slothful. 
Look at verse number 19. A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. We know very well that the highest pinnacle of priority can't be given to money, but it is needful. We need it to purchase the things that are required for this life, the physical matters thereof. And he notes here that a feast is made for laughter. You don't make a feast for a time of sorrow. And by the same token, he says money can be there to provide the necessity of purchasing or acquiring those things that can be very needful and important. Curse not the king, verse number 20. I have wondered, and perhaps you have as well, is verse 20 the place where the little slogan, a little birdie told me? Well, maybe you've had individuals who would speak about information ultimately being shared, and they came to know something, and they wouldn't divulge the source, but they would say, a little bird told me. Look at what Solomon wrote. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Maybe that old saying came from that verse. But at the very least, aren't we admonished to be very careful in our words, even in private, to insult someone, to speak negatively of someone, Hadn't it often been true that what is said and what we thought was private ultimately becomes known in some way and by some circles, and it does reach the person whose ears we were in fact insulting? Maybe that teaches us the following. A Christian ought never to be speaking ugly things even in private. But we ought to even be mindful and careful. If the facts of the case warrant discussion, that's a different matter. But just to talk idly... And to talk speculatively about circumstances, especially those in high positions, we're reminded here that that kind of thing, you'd be better off left unsaid. And with that, the chapter closes. The practicality of wisdom over against the folly we've seen in this chapter. This concluding slide is one that does just that because this again was the last chapter before the final section in chapters 11 and 12. We finally are going to lift our sights above that scene under the sun and we're going to look in the last two chapters at the final matter and among that the whole duty of man will be set before us. I hope we continue to be encouraged by Ecclesiastes tonight. If there would be anyone that perhaps is not a faithful Christian, Maybe you have lived with some element of folly. Make some changes that we call repentance. Come back to your first love. We'd be delighted to assist you by praying to God on your behalf. This very night, if there would be that need in anyone's life, we encourage you to come and we would desire you certainly to do that and to do it at once in the interest of truthfulness and in the interest of wisdom and to do it right now while together we stand and while we sing.